Good morning, guys. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Graham Cowgill. I'm the student ministries pastor here. Good to be with you guys again, two weeks in a row. Poor you. Poor you. After uh, service tonight, after the 6 p.m. service, I'll get a little bit of sleep, pack, and then tomorrow at 4 a.m. I take off for high school camp all week. Nothing better than high school camp. Unless, of course, you like sleep, and in that case, everything is better than high school camp. Uh, Yeah, we're going to have a blast, and I know that God's going to do some awesome things. So uh, can we pray before we get started this morning? Hey, good morning, Hugh. Good to see you, buddy. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, today. I just think that you have a very good word for us. I trust that this time is yours. Um, I don't know, all of our prejudice, all of our preconceptions, can we just for a little bit put that to the side? Can we just become available during this time, Lord, to hear what you want to speak? We are tuned in to the specific word that you have for us. We're available for what you want to speak to us. We trust you and we love you. In your name, amen. Well, we're in this series, Oh, the Places We'll Go, based on the book, uh, the poem by Dr. Seuss. Did anybody go and read that this week, by the way? Okay, if you still haven't read it, go read it. Awesome poem. Um, But last week, we talked about the story of Gideon. And if you weren't here, go check out the podcast. It's such a powerful story. And we talked about how we shift our reality to encompass, you know, God's desire to use us in incredible ways, even though we have weaknesses, and that we start to look for ways that God is going to use us. And it's very powerful. This week, we're going to look at a a different part of the series. We're going to look at it in a different light, because I love the story of Gideon. In fact, it's one of the most motivational, inspirational stories you'll hear. If I'm ever losing in a basketball game at halftime, I'm going to read Gideon over myself and I'll go back and crush somebody, right? It's, it's pumped. But also, I, I realize that in my life, there's this hope for the Gideon, for the leading your army into battle. But to be totally honest, my journey, my life, if I am the subject of that book, uh, I've got a lot of places that I've gone um, that make for some pretty hard to read chapters. You know, and I think that I hope for here, I hope for Gideon, but a lot of times I relate more kind of to down here. And before we get started, this is not a downer message, okay? Because uh, it's very easy to think that this, this message is an anticipation or an expectation of failure, and it's not. That this is a recognition of imperfection. Right? That this is an understanding that God can use. And actually, I think this message is so important that I think it's the lens that every single story in Scripture needs to be viewed through. I think it's that important. I think today's message is so important that it's kind of the glue that holds the series together. Because we're answering today the question, what do we do when the places that we've gone, the places that we are, the places that we go what do we do when that leads us to the pit? What do we do when that leads us to a time that we've totally blown it? What do we do when it leads us to the worst case scenario? What then? So we're going to look at the life of a guy in scripture who has an incredible journey. His name's David. And so much happens in David's life, we can't cover it all. So I'm going to give you kind of the cliff's notes of David's life. I'm just going to 
briefly run through his life so we can get a handle on who we're talking about. David, early in his life, we're going to say ages like 10 to 13, David is anointed as the future king of Israel. Youngest of his brothers, weakest of his brothers, and in light of that, he is anointed. You are going to be the future king of Israel. Crazy to happen to a 10-year-old. When he's 15, he has his first appearance on the battlefield. Here's what happens. The Israelite army that we talked about last week, the Israelite army is fighting the Philistine army, and the Philistine army has this massive, massive guy. This guy's like Graham 2.0, right? (laughs) He's nine foot four. He's huge. He's been a warrior since second trimester. This guy's just been fighting forever, born with a sword, right? He's like John Henry, but the warrior version. Most painful birth of all time, I'm sure. But anyway, that's Goliath. And here's Goliath. And every single day, this massive nine-foot-four Philistine comes out onto the battlefield to the Israelite army, to the Israelite, says, you send your best man out. We're going to go mano a mano fight, and then the loser becomes slaves for the other army, this huge nine-foot-four literal giant. And of course, all of the Israelites are like, no way, dude. That guy is massive. Look at those quads. And uh, so David shows up to the battlefield one day, shepherd boy, young. He's not there to fight. He's just there to watch. And he sees this happening, and he's like, hey, who's going to go kill this guy? Everyone's like, what are you talking about? He's like, who's going to go kill this guy? And they're like, why don't you go kill him? And David says, you know he's just a man, right? Like, you know we have the God of the universe on our side. Yeah, I'll go kill him. So David goes out there with no armor, no sword, no nothing. All he has is a shepherd boy. He has this little sling, which you kind of whip around and let a rock go. It's pretty lame. But he takes his sling and a couple rocks. He goes out to this massive dude lets her rip, and this rock hits Goliath between the eyes, and this nine-foot-four huge giant of a man falls dead. David goes over, uses Goliath's sword that he can barely even pick up, cuts off Goliath's head, grabs it, holds it up to the Israelite army, and is like, told ya, type of thing. Everyone's like, whoa. And so at that point, everybody... They revere David as a great warrior, but even more than that, David is known for his incredible faith at that point. I think about that faith. People just know David sees life differently because David sees God differently. And I wanted to paint this picture of David to know that we're not dealing with a scrub in today's story. Fast forward a couple years, and now David has assumed his role as king over Israel and says that David is a very good king that the kingdom flourishes under David's rule, that the people like David. He's a good king. And not only that, not only has his warrior status continued, but his early faith in God remains integrous through his life to when he's king. As a matter of fact, it's so much so that God describes, defines, and names David as a man after God's own heart. That's the name given to David. What an awesome honor that is, huh? A man after God's own heart. And again, I say that to let you know that we're dealing with a king, we're dealing with a man here who passionately, genuinely loves God and seeks to reign, seeks to rule with God's blessing. So the story here, um, it starts out in scripture, it says, in the spring when kings are at war, in the spring, the time that kings are at war, And in the story, David is not away at war. A lot of people say that this is David's 
first mistake. The point is, his army is off fighting, dying to expand his kingdom. David's back at home. Regardless, David's home. He's on the roof of his palace, and he's kind of surveying, looking over the expanse of his kingdom, okay? And as he's looking over the kingdom, he sees on this roof this woman who is very beautiful and very naked taking a bath. And she is appropriately named Bathsheba, okay? <laughs> yeah. So this whole story could have been avoided if her parents would have named her Shower Sheba. She would have been inside. We wouldn't have had to deal. But anyway, she's Bathsheba. She's up on the roof. David sees her, says she's beautiful, and is overcome with this desire, this lust. And he says, hey, to his men, go find out who this chick is. So they go. They interview her. They come back and they go, it's Bathsheba. And uh, yeah, she's got a sister named Shower Sheba. Don't worry about her. Bathsheba. And uh, she is married to Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah, her husband, is off in battle fighting for the expansion of David's kingdom. And still, overcome with lust, overcome with desire, David says, bring her to me, bring her to the palace. They bring Bathsheba to the palace, and David sleeps with Bathsheba. And not too long after that, Bathsheba gives word to the king, I'm pregnant with your baby. Jerry, Jerry. Uh, It's just like... Things are heating up. Now, the reason this is heartbreaking is because this was David, right? This is the stud David, man after God's own heart, David. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in this horrible place where he's gotten this this woman pregnant who's married. Um, David kind of has one of two ways to go here. He can say, oh my gosh, I've totally blown it, come clean and face the consequences, or he can go the other direction, which is the, the direction he chooses to go, and he tries to cover everything up. So his plan is, I'm going to bring Uriah home from battle, I'm going to get Uriah to sleep with his wife, then I can pawn this kid off as Uriah's, and my hands are clean. That's his plan, right? A man after God's own heart, just caught in this, this crazy atrocity. So he sends for Uriah, Uriah comes home, and he's like, Uriah, my man, love the work you've been doing, dude, you know, just like the fighting and everything, that's great. Hey, um, why don't you go home, okay, just take the night off, have a good meal, I don't know, some sex with your wife, I don't know, and then just, you know, take the night off, it's on me. And Uriah is such a man of integrity that Uriah says, I'm not going to go home and enjoy my wife and enjoy a meal in my bed when my men are out fighting and dying on the battlefield. David's like, oh my gosh, I got an eagle scout here, right? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. So your, his next plan is essentially to get Uriah drunk and to try the same thing. So they have a meal. He's just sliding Uriah glass after glass of wine, and Uriah gets really drunk, and David tries again, you know. Uriah, wine's pretty good, isn't it? You know what's even better? Sex with your wife type of thing. And still, Uriah has so much integrity, even in that state, in that drunken state, that he sleeps outside on the palace steps with the king's officers instead of going home. So David, he's tried twice, and time is passing, and it's getting harder and harder to pass this off. Uh, on Uriah. And so in desperation, he has this plan. 
he writes a letter to the commanding officer of the army that says, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines. I want you to go to the place where the fighting is the fiercest, and I want you to pull back and let Uriah be killed. A man after God's own heart. Folds it, he seals this letter, and who does he send it with? Uriah. Uriah is literally carrying his death sentence to the commanding officer of the army. Delivers it, they go to the place where the fighting is the fiercest, they pull back, Uriah is killed, and David's thinking to himself, I did it, I got away with it. As a matter of fact, at that moment when they get word back to the palace that Uriah is dead, um, he sends for Bathsheba, has her brought to the palace, and takes her as his wife. Now we've said before in Scripture that the Bible is split into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? And the Bible is split by the life of Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, the way that God communicates to his people, the, the way that he communicates to us, is he would speak through people called prophets, and the prophets would communicate what God had said to them. That's, that's the way that God communicates. So he speaks through a prophet in this story named Nathan, and he says, Nathan, I've got a word for you. I want you to go talk to the king. So Nathan says, all right, he goes. And Nathan says, King David, I've got a story for you. David's like, great, I love stories. Hit me with it. He says, there's a rich man, and this rich man has thousands of sheep, thousands of cattle, has expansive riches. And then there's a poor man. And the poor man, all he has to his name is one little ewe lamb. Now, the poor man loves this lamb. It's his only possession. It's his only companion. And though he doesn't have much food, he gives half of everything that he has to the lamb. This baby lamb sleeps in his arms. He loves this lamb like it was a child. One day, King David, in this story, a traveler comes to the rich man. He says, I'm hungry. I need to eat. And this rich man, instead of taking one of his thousands of sheep, he goes to the poor man, takes his ewe lamb, slaughters it, and feeds the traveler with the ewe lamb. And David is enraged. He is furious. We pick up with the story, 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 5. David became very angry at the rich man. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this should die. He must pay for the lamb four times for doing such a thing. He had no mercy. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are that man. And in that moment, you can just imagine, like his heart sinks. He has this moment of clarity, and in an instant, he realizes all that he's done. In an instant, the place that he's gone to, he realizes, is this brokenness and this atrocity he never thought that he was capable of. Has anybody here ever um, hosted a dinner party or like a Thanksgiving? I'm sure everybody has. You know when you're going to host a dinner party or a Thanksgiving, how you got to clean up your house because people are coming over? But you never really clean up your house. You really just clean the living room and the dining room. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Your living room and dining room look immaculate. You do the bleach rags and you dust everything. Everything that's weird and dirty and messy, you put in a closet or in the upstairs bedroom, right? That's the way it works. So then you have people come over and you're like, how about this living room, huh? Pretty beautiful. And people are like, nice looking living room. And then there's always one person that's like, hey, can we go upstairs? And you're like, nope, nope. 
Not at all. We go to the bathroom out on the lawn. Thank you very much. Uh, but isn't, look at the upholstery. What a beautiful living room, huh? I think that our lives are, are very, very similar to this. Um, if you're anything like me, I spend so much time and energy in my life trying to show off my living room. I have uh, this person that I try to portray. I, I have a person that I, I try to put forth and I clean everything about it. And I think that's what people are impressed with. And come look at my living room. And then I have this filthy closet. I have a filthy upstairs bedroom that very, very few people are allowed to go in. Today I want to talk about something even deeper than that. Today I want to talk about the basement. The basement that everybody has but nobody talks about. The basement that your friends don't even know you have. The basement that you spend time and energy trying to ignore. For me, I compartmentalize my life so that I never have to think about the basement. I blame other people for my basement. I justify my basement. David has this basement that in the middle of this horrible actions and the follow-up, his basement is getting deeper and deeper, dirtier and dirtier. And then Nathan comes to him and in an instant, in an instant, David is forced to come face to face with his basement. Anybody here ever had to come face to face with your basement? I have. Um, I was in the Air Force. I was over in Korea. And um, it was a really rough season, to be honest. Um, I didn't have any accountability. I didn't have any community. I felt very isolated. And I just had totally lost perspective, really, on, on who I was, on what life was about. And I remember um, after a pretty regrettable weekend, I was sitting in my room, and I was sitting there, and I was staring into this mirror. And I just stared into this mirror for 30 minutes, and I think I had one of the most honest conversations I ever have with God. And I remember that almost, almost emotionally, almost spiritually, while I'm staring into this mirror, I go in my house over to the door to the basement, and I open it up, I start to walk down the stairs, and I just remember sitting there for like 30 minutes, staring in, into the reflection of the mirror, sitting in the middle of my basement, and all of my filth that I just couldn't ignore any longer, and I just said over and over, over and over, I said, don't give up on me. I remember just repeating that to God, don't give up on me, don't give up on me, don't give up on me, God, don't give up on me. Remember very, very clearly that God said in that moment, he said, I will never give up on you, my son. You are loved. You are mine. Scripture says that Jesus, who is God's son, who is fully God, came to earth. He humbled himself to be a man. And that Jesus loved us so much that he died for us. It actually refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And for our basements, for the punishment of the things that we have screwed up, this innocent, perfect Lamb of God was led to the slaughter to die for us. Luke 23, starting in verse 32, 
It describes the scene of what's happening. The term is crucifixion. When, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, what does that scene look like when the lamb was led to the slaughter, when he died for us? Starting in verse 32, there were also two criminals led out with Jesus to be put to death. When they came to a place called the skull, the soldiers crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The soldiers threw lots to decide who would get his clothes. The people stood there, excuse me, watching, and the leaders made fun of Jesus, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's God's chosen one, the Christ. The soldiers also made fun of him, coming to Jesus and offering him some vinegar. They said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. At the top of the cross, these words were written, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals on a cross began to shout insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Then save yourself, save us. But the other criminal stopped him and said, you should fear God. You are getting the same punishment he is. We are punished justly, getting what we deserve for what we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, barely hanging on, scourged, beaten, bleeding, barely conscious, turns to him and says, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. The first person to receive grace from Jesus' death on the cross was? Wasn't somebody that deserves it. Wasn't somebody with their life together. Wasn't somebody who had proven loyalty to Jesus and to God for his entire life. The first person to be in heaven because of Jesus' death on the cross was a dirty, lying thief who was just willing to open his basement I said earlier that I think today is the glue that holds this series together. The reason I said that is because we have to realize that there's every single story we read in Scripture, every journey that we've gone through in this series, the point is not the characters in that story. The point is not the lives that they've led. The point is not Mephibosheth. The point is not Gideon. The, the point is not David. It's that every single story in the Bible points to the life and the death of Jesus. Every single story points to the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross so that we could be reunited with God. Every story in the Old, in the Old Testament that you'll read, every single one is foretelling and creating context for the birth, the life, the death, and the raising from the dead of Jesus. Every story in the New Testament that you read boils down and points to the birth, the life, the death, and the raising from the dead of Jesus. Every single story we read, the point of the Bible is to point us to what Jesus did on the cross. And we've got the tendency, I have the tendency to think that, you know, the good news of the gospel, the good news of, of, of the Bible is this triumphant fruition of our Gideon moments. That's the good news, is that one day we'll be able to do this, and maybe one day you too will be able to go against an army. If we anchor our hope to the culmination of a situation, if that's what we anchor our hope to, we're anchoring our hope to an inconsistent world and to a sinner's response to that world. If I'm going to anchor my hope to something, it has to be to something immovable. 
I anchor my hope to something that is unwavering. And so what we anchor our hope to is the unchanging, unwavering, unconditional, perfect grace of God. The good news of the Bible is God's grace. Now we saw at the beginning of the service in the video, Sandy, she said that her reaction to a good father was to run to him, right? You ever heard the word um, uh, repentance? Repentance literally means to turn. That's what the word means. What causes us to turn to God? What causes us to turn around and to run towards him? Romans 2.4 says, the goodness of God leads men to repentance. The goodness of God leads men to repentance. And so in the middle of this, this horrible place that David is, in the middle of his basement being opened, everything spilled out, this is a psalm that David writes in response to where he is, in a recognition that the goodness of God leads men to repentance. When David turns around, even though his sins are there for everybody to see, here's what he says. Psalm 32. Happy is the person whose sins are forgiven, whose wrongs are pardoned. Happy is the person whom the Lord does not consider guilty and in whom there is nothing false. When I kept things to myself, I felt weak deep inside me. I moaned all day long. Day and night you punished me. My strength was gone as in the summer heat. Then I confessed my sins to you. I didn't hide my guilt. I said, I will confess my sins to the Lord, and you forgave my guilt. For this reason, all who obey you should pray to you while they still can. When troubles rise like a flood, they will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You protect me from my troubles and fill me with songs of salvation. There's a difference. David goes from hiding from God to hiding in God. It is so easy to think, guys, that it's my beautiful living room that draws people to God. What God really cares about is how pristine and clean and beautiful my living room and my dining room can appear to people. You know, the most beautiful, compelling part of our God is it's not that he makes your living room beautiful. The most beautiful, breathtaking, compelling, powerful part of our God is that his love, his grace, his mercy declare us forgiven and righteous in the face of our despicable basement. That's the beauty of God. That's the beauty of the gospel. Is that how we're defined is not what we've done. It's what Jesus has done on the cross. All of history points to it. Now today I'm going to ask you guys to be bold in response. Um, I'm looking back at the story, and there's a time in the story when Nathan comes to David, and he calls him out, and David very easily at that moment, he could have run, right? He could have said, ah, you got the wrong guy, you heard wrong from God, or you haven't heard my side of the story, but instead, David is vulnerable enough in that moment to face his basement, to open the door. So I believe that God is speaking right now, I believe that God is highlighting right now 
I believe that we've given him this time. We've become available and that he is moving. And I'm going to ask you guys right now to close your eyes and to enter this moment with me. I want you guys to picture your daily life right now. Picture your living room, your, your dining room. Picture the parts of your life that you try so very hard to portray as clean and put together. Now, as you're sitting in that, it takes so much energy and it's so tiring. And you know over there in the, in the corner of the house, there's the door to your basement. A door that maybe you haven't even looked at yourself in months or years. This morning, as you're terrified, as you're scared to death, would you be willing to take one step towards that door? Take another step, begin walking towards the basement door. Now, you know what's behind the door. You know what's down in your basement. You know those horrible things that you've done that you don't tell anybody about. And now you're standing in front of your door, scared out of your wits, ashamed, embarrassed. Would you reach out, take the handles of the door, and would you open it? And the dust hits you, and the stench hits you. Now would you walk down the steps? gets dirtier and dirtier you know what's in there you know what's in your basement keep going down the steps and now you're down you're in your basement the things that you haven't thought about forever and you look and what do you see you see your perfect loving heavenly father standing there in the middle of your basement, tears streaming down his face with his arms wide open. He tells you, I'll never give up on you. I'll never give up on you. You are loved and you are mine. And you realize that God has been with you this entire time. He's been walking down the stairs with you. He knows everything in your basement. He's just ready for you to run to him. Would you guys stand and keep your, keep your eyes closed um, as you stand, but I want you guys just to put your hands out. Remain in that place because I know if you're anything like me, everything in me wants to run away. Everything in me wants to go and close the door and never go back. But God declares that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the basement is not a place of guilt and shame. That the basement is a place where grace overcomes anything that we can do. As you're standing there, you have a choice, just like David did. You can run up, close the door and not think about it. Will you run to him? His arms are open, waiting for you to run to him and to embrace him. 
Will you allow yourself to be embraced? Don't miss this this morning.